morning, everyone. It's good to see you all again. It's good to be here um, with the privilege of sharing God's Word and um, to progress us in our series of bona fide faith or bona fide faith, however you might choose to say that. The issue of authentic, genuine, real faith. And as we're walking through these chapters of James, we're kind of encountering what that faith looks like, what that faith sounds like, what that faith feels like, what that faith behaves like. And one of the fundamental things we see James really kind of jumping in and attacking is this, this sense that belief dictates behavior. Belief dictates behavior. We were at community group a couple of weeks ago, and Brother Andrew Carnegie, man of great wisdom, I think he's in Jamaica at the moment, so um, I was going to say keep him in your prayers. But um, he, he said this, he made this statement, and it really kind of struck me. He said, you know what somebody really believes by the way they live? You know what somebody really believes by the way they live. And so this is the, the general essence and theme of what James is dealing with in our section of the text today. When thinking about this issue, um, I often think back to um, one of my, a, a film that is an all-time classic to me. Um, I've probably mentioned it a couple times in sermons before, so you probably have heard me um, reference it. But I, I film that, it, you know, for me, it kind of just, maybe it was the era of life in which I saw it and the way it really kind of caught me and it spoke to me. Um, film with such profound depth and meaning. <laughs> Marseille's shaking her head already. <laughs> so you can feel the punchline coming. Um, and you might not think that for me to say it was an Eddie Murphy film would follow the previous statement of it being a film of such profound depth and meaning. But the film Coming to America. <laughs> See, I know I've got a witness in there that it's a classic, right? Film's a classic. And he presents himself in New York as the Prince of Zamunda. Um, but he's trying to disguise his identity and it, and it comes out in the end. And, um, you know, his, his love interest, her dad isn't really interested in him because as far as he's concerned, he's just this, this cleaner who's, who's able, only able to flip burgers at his McDaniels burger joint. And um, he sees little glimpses of quality in this guy, like how he handles the robbers and so on. And he kind of like, mm, but he's still not interested until he sees, um, is, it, is, it, is it Hakim? No, Hakim is the, the sidekick, right? What was the, what the, his name was Hakim? No, but the, the, the prince. Semi, and the prince was Hakim. So Hakim's parents come towards the end of the film, that last quarter, when you get the big reveal. His parents come, but <laughs> they turn up and stretch limo, and as if that weren't enough, they have um, flower bearers <laughs> dropping petals as they go. <laughs> and so the dad sees the evidence of Hakim's true status and identity, and his eyes widen. And all of a sudden, he's interested because as much as there were hints, he wasn't convinced because he didn't see the evidence. And it just reminds me of all that James is, is intimating here and the reality of the Christian journey. Bonafide faith works. Bonafide faith works. I heard a brother once say, the faith that works is the faith that works. I thought that was a bar, classic. <laughs> and that's the truth of the matter. Now, I warn you in advance that as we jump into the text today, um, there are some for whom it may be quite unsettling. Firstly, the approach. We're going to have to do a bit of thinking. And I know generally people can be inclined towards drive-through sermons or even drive-by sermons. 
Jesus, love you. <laughs> and that's it. Keep moving. Yeah, that's enough for me. I got hit. That's it. I can go on, go on with my week. Some people would drive through sermons. Just give me what I need. Quick. I'm on the run. Let me go. And there can often be a lack of commitment to actually, as the scripture says, be diligent or work or labor in the word to show ourselves approved unto who? Unto our brothers and sisters so we can look good, theological muscles, but unto God. And so we're going we're to do a bit of thinking. But it's also going to be unsettling for the person who may not be too serious because James is really drawing a line in the sand. And he kind of started fairly calm, but he's not happy. And we'll see this come out here. There's a point where he calls his readers fools. Mm. He's not happy. And so let's see what is the, the, the seat of James's discontentment as he um, unpacks this. So we're looking at James chapter 2, 14 to 26. Um, I'll read the first verse and pray. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Father, we do present our hearts to you and ask that, Lord, you would help us today by your Spirit. Help us to hear. And yet, Lord, as we've read, as we've learned, as we've considered already, that, Lord, we would not be hearers only, but that we would be doers of your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd give us open hearts and open minds to hear from you. That, Lord, as I speak, that it would not be the sound of my words that people hear, but that people would hear the voice of your spirit as you speak to our hearts. I do pray, Lord, that you would use me. Um, and that, Lord, we would all leave with a greater view of who you are, how good you are, and, Lord, of the great work that you've done in Christ. And so we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So again, James is reiterating his audience. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to brethren those who are in the faith, or more specifically, those who have made a profession of faith. Hmm. This is particularly re relevant to us because we live in an era where the sinner's prayer is a very common, if not one of the most common means by which somebody is introduced to relationship with Jesus. The sinner's prayer. Now, there was a stage in my life when I, I began to kind of reflect on this experience of presenting somebody with the sinner's prayer and using that as a definitive marker as to that now they are a Christian. A few issues troubled me. First and foremost, I didn't find the sinner's prayer in the Bible. And you could say, well, there's a lot of things as Christians that we say and do that are not specifically stated in the Bible, and I would say amen. But in principle, I struggle to find it supported in Scripture as the means by which a person is defined to be a Christian, as the means, because that's how it was in my time, and maybe it's not so much nowadays, but in my time, if somebody was going to become a Christian, you lead them in the sinner's prayer, and if they've said the sinner's prayer... And they're now a Christian. I grew up in the faith in an era when the altar call was commonplace in the church service. Some of you can bear witness. Some of you came to um, Ecclesia, formerly Calvary Chapel, and you wondered, hold on, there's something wrong with this picture. Because at the end of the service, there's no altar call. And you were like, mm, is this church really serious? Now, thankfully, you've stuck around to find out. <laughs> but again, that was something that wasn't presented as scripture 
as the means or avenue through which a person becomes a Christian, or more importantly, is defined as a Christian. Now, I'm not speaking against those things in and of themselves. The intention is um, genuine, and the desire to help people connect with God most often is true. But these are not things that are to be relied on, and they are definitely not things that are to be the definition of how a person becomes a Christian. There's a um, Christian research group based in the United States who done a survey, and they've done an in-depth study, a longitudinal survey, for those who know about those things. And basically, the idea was, we're going to look at during a period of time, across a thousand congregations, people that make a profession of faith, they put their hand up at the end of a service, they walk forward, they make some kind of indication that they wish to become a Christian. And then we're going to monitor their progress after a year, after three years, after five years. Within three years, 90% of those people were no longer professing faith in Christ. 90%. Now, when I learned that through the uh, ministry of Ray Comfort and where the master, I was astounded. Some of us have had the experience of being in a situation where there's an auto call and we've been up repeatedly, multiple times. Why wasn't once enough? Well, this is what James is dealing with. Where is the, the expectation supposed to be truly placed? Is it on what someone says or is it on what someone does as to whether or not they have true faith, bona fide faith, real faith? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works. You see, there are a few things we need to define as we look here. First and foremost, as James presents this issue, look at his wording carefully. If you're not somebody who's a detailed person, it will be easy to read over this. So let me just draw your attention. Someone says they have faith. Hmm. Did you know that I am a Jewish descendant? <laughs> Bertram tried to dis discredit me, you know, through Judith <laughs> by marriage. No, I'm a Jewish descendant. Now, some of you are looking at me skeptically, and you're thinking, you know what, Pastor E, like. You look about as Jewish as my big toe. <laughs> so somehow you need to kind of qualify that. You need to show us, you need to justify that statement. You need to give us some kind of evidence to suggest that we might want to believe you. Bertram said that's right. Someone says they have faith. Someone says they have saving faith in Christ Jesus. But there is no evidence, no outward demonstration that would affirm that or accompany that. Can that faith save him? The faith that has no works, the faith that has no evidence, can that faith save him? And so we've just began to define exactly what James is talking about when he talks about faith and works in this section of the text. You see, some would say, as Martin Luther the Reformer once said, the book of James, I wish I could just tear it out of the scripture and throw it away because it just contradicts Romans. It contradicts Ephesians. It contradicts the work of, of God by grace through faith. When actually, James isn't contradicting anything. He's elaborating on or expounding on what true faith is. Ephesians 2, verses 
we ought to be familiar with, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through what? Through what? So salvation by grace was something we entered into through. And without faith, we couldn't enter into it, right? So faith is essential to salvation. So why would James say, can that faith save him? I mean, faith saves. Yes, faith saves. And James isn't questioning that. But faith saves if it's genuine. If it's genuine faith. If it's real faith. If it's bona fide faith. And so, James rightly asks the question, can that faith save him? The faith that has no evidence, that has no outward demonstration of its reality. He goes on to say, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So he gives an example, and he goes back to the issue of the poor. And this seems evidently to be part of James's beef with the people that he's writing to. There seems to be this issue between the haves and the have-nots. And the way in which those who had were not loving and caring for and practically being attentive to those who have not. And we talked about that last week, an expression of that being partiality. And so even in his example, in his illustration, he's making a point for them to take on board. You're going to say to a brother or sister who is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, a brother or sister, like this is a member of your family, go in peace, be warmed and filled. So the sentiment is being expressed, but there is nothing outwardly demonstrated to support or affirm the sentiment. And remember, he's speaking to someone who has it. He's not speaking to someone who doesn't. What good is that? It's no good to the hearer. It's no good to the person who received those words. Are those words going to make them warm? Are those words going to fill their belly? No. And yet still, it's actually no good to the person who's saying it. Because they're deceiving themselves if they think it's going to make any difference whatsoever. And so he says, in this manner, in the same way that sentiment is fruitless, worthless, likewise, faith without works is dead. So, we appreciate we are saved through faith alone. But the faith that saves will never be alone. Through faith alone, not of works. We're not justified before God by our works. Through faith in the work of Christ and what Jesus has done. And yet, if we have that, then that faith will not remain by itself. But it will be accompanied. It will result in works. And actually, if you're reading Ephesians faithfully and diligently, you see that in the text anyway. It's right there. I mean... We quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. Hallelujah. Grace, grace, grace. 
so that no one may boast. But don't stop there. What does it go on to say? For we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. So God's done and is doing a work on and in us. Created in Christ Jesus for what? Oh, work with me, Bertrand, please. Don't, don't help them, bro. <laughs> don't help them. Created in Christ Jesus for? So, amen. <laughs> yes. Out of the mouths of babes. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so, there can be the, the risk of so overemphasizing grace that we say everything is according to God's sovereignty, according to God's power. We have no responsibility whatever. There's no expectation of us because we're not justified by works. And so my works actually don't matter. That's not true. That's not gospel. We are created for good works. And it doesn't even stop there. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So even in that, we see grace, that God prepared the works, and we are going to walk in the works that he has prepared and crafted and enabled us to do. So it's still of him, but we apply, we obey, we outwork. So is your faith producing corresponding works? Is your faith in Jesus producing corresponding works? I once heard the story of um, Christians under persecution in the Eastern Bloc, and they were meeting in secret in, in, a, in a, a, a place where they gathered to worship the Lord, and some soldiers burst in, and they burst in with their guns. This is an illegal gathering. Unless you want to die, leave here now. And some scurried out quickly, and there were others that deliberated. But when we're meeting in the name of the Lord, and I don't want to deny my Lord like that. And then they reaff if unless you want to die, leave here now. And a couple others left, and then there were some that remained, a small group. And they just remained praying. And the soldiers closed the door, locked the door behind them. And they walked over with the guns in hand, put the guns down, took the hats off. Oh, we're so glad. And the Christians are looking like, what's going on? What's the meaning of this? Well, we wanted to separate the, the, the fair weather fakes from the real. Because we want to know this Jesus. This Jesus that you're prepared to die for. might seem like an extreme and unrelated example. But that's faith evidenced by their works. How is your faith evidenced by your works? I heard somebody once say, if it were illegal to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If it were illegal to be a Christian, would there be sufficient evidence in your life for you to be convicted, for you to be arrested and sentenced as guilty of being a Christian? Now, we don't live in an environment, and I almost said thank the Lord we don't live in an environment where we live under that kind of threat. I'm sure that the persecuted church lament and mourn for us when they look at our lukewarm, wishy-washy, uncommitted selves. Because it is no secret that they give thanks and praise to God for their hardship. Because of how it causes them to be so close to Jesus. So refined in their hearts and in their commitment. But this is James's issue. He goes on to say, 
verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, there's a lot of questions about how this verse can be read. Do the quotation marks end after the first phrase? But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Or should it end at the end of the verse? Should the quotation marks end at the end of the verse? Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Whichever way you look at it, the point is the same. The faith that works must produce works. Now, in the same way that I can stand here for 10 seconds in silence, thinking, Pastor E, you're kind of freaking me out, you know, it's a bit strange. <laughs> and then I could say to you, what was I thinking in that 10 seconds? What were my feelings in that 10 seconds? The most you could do is hazard a guess. You don't know. But as I begin to express, as I begin to outwork what's going on inside, you then are presented with evidence to work with, to consider. And so James is saying, look, it's not enough for you to simply have faith in your heart. It's not enough for Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior, which is of no relevance to anyone else. Actually, that is not saving faith. Real faith will be accompanied by affirming works, evidencing that genuine faith is there. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Hold on a second. But first and foremost, why does this suggest that my belief in God is not enough? And furthermore, on top of that, how is it that even the demons believe? I thought demons were anti-God, anti-Christ, anti all that is holy and righteous. What do you mean that demons believe? And in this, James helpfully clarifies. He helpfully, the, what, what, the difference between true belief and false belief. You see, there's a difference between a mental agreement or a mental awareness, a mental recognition, and a heart embrace. To believe in God, to believe in Christ with our minds is easy. To recognize that God exists is easy. To even recognize that Jesus Christ is a historical fact, a historical person, is easy. Is that sufficient, though, to be saving faith? And James is saying, no, it's not. Just having a mental recognition, or some say mental assent, a mental agreement, a mental awareness, in your mind, it makes sense, is not enough. Because that is not the kind of believing that Jesus has called people to. Most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever... But hold on. Even the demons believe. How comes they're not saved? That would just done the issue right now, right? Because there is a difference in just being aware mentally, recognizing in our minds, and embracing with our hearts and trusting. You 
You may have heard me once tell the story of, of the great Blondin. He was a, um, I won't even say magician. What do you call those people that do like great feats? Like, not just acrobatics, but not illusionist. No. He wasn't an illusionist. No, he was, it was more than that. Because when I tell you, you'll see what I mean. This brother, right, put a, um, a, a wire across Niagara Falls. Yeah? And he's like, yes, everybody's there, crowds. I'm going to walk across Niagara Falls. He's like, yes. He goes on a wire and he kind of walks. Tightrope, amen, tightrope walker. Goes on the wire, walks. Da -da -da -da. People are like watching him. Ooh. He goes out there, he walks, walks out halfway, lies down, gets up, comes back. I'm going to walk right across. Do you believe I can do it? Yes, yes, the crowd, because they just want to see him drop in it. Because <laughs> that's what we like. Yes, we believe you can do it, because at the end of the day, it's you. <laughs> Wonderful. He gets up there, he's got a wheelbarrow, he walks on there with a wheelbarrow, halfway, comes back. I'm going to walk right across, do you believe I can do it? Yes, yes, okay, let me get a volunteer to get in the barrow. <laughs> now it's easy to say, yeah, yes, I believe, I believe. But do you really believe? To the point where you're going to put your life in his hands, kind of believe. And that is the faith that we are called to. This is the faith that we are expected to have if we have bona fide faith. Genuine, real, authentic faith. A faith that says, I no longer assume control and ownership of my life, but I put my life into God's hands. I put my life in, surrendered into Christ's hands that his will be done. Trusting that he's good. Trusting that his work on the cross, when he died in my place and was raised from the dead on the third day, and God added his amen in raising him, that that and that alone is sufficient to make me right with God. And not anything that I can add to that, but I'm trusting completely in Jesus to the point where I'm putting my life into his hands. I'm getting in his wheelbarrow. Because I know that he will take me safely across that chasm. Now, that's not the kind of belief, that's not the kind of faith that demons have. They are aware, and we read in the Gospels, Jesus would turn up and somebody would start manifesting a demonic spirit, and, oh, son of God, what have we got to do with you now? Like, our time has not come yet, basically. And Jesus is just like, shut up and come out. <laughs> literally, literally, hold your peace. Shut your mouth and come out. And that's the authority of Christ over the demonic powers. But they knew who he was. They was aware. In the book of Acts, when the, um, the, the, the seven Jewish exorcists, the sons of Sceva, were, were going out to, to chase out demons and the demons turned on them. Jesus we know. Paul we know. But who the dickens are you? They weren't in Christ. They had no authority. They had no power. And the demons chased them. See, there is an awareness that is held within the realm of the spirit. And also amongst people, there's an awareness. But that isn't sufficient. Is there a submitted, trusting reliance upon Jesus? James ain't having it. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? Like, Are you mad? That faith apart from works is useless. 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son, Isaac, on the altar? Now, again, straight away, that's like, James, why are you coming with these problems? Was Abraham our father, wasn't he not justified by works? And yet, in the book of Romans, we see that the Apostle Paul says, contrary. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. <laughs> but not before God. No justification by works there. This is where context is important. You see, James is using the term works in a different way to the way that Paul's using the term works. In the context, we see that Paul is speaking about the law and the works of the law and that nobody is justified by the works of the law. Sorry, I thought I had a reference in Romans there for you. But. So th these are the works that the Apostle Paul, Paul is speaking about in Romans 4 and in the book of Romans. He's already established that the gospel is the, the, the means of salvation. It's the power of God unto salvation in chapter 1. And he's spoken of those who have departed and exchanged um, the, the, the true and living God for the creation the creator for the creation, and they've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. And then he turns on the Jews and he says, look, don't think, that, uh, you know, you're already better than the Gentiles. There's none good. No, not one. There is none that seeks after God. No one does what is, what is righteous. You think you have the law and therefore that, that makes you right with God, but you don't keep the law. No one is justified by the works of the law. And so in this, he appeals to Abraham, who predates the law of Moses, and says that actually Abraham was made, he was declared right. He was declared righteous, but not because of the works of the law. But it was by faith that Abraham was declared righteous. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So in this, Romans is Paul speaking about the works of the law, just as he does in Galatians, just as he does in Ephesians, speaking of the works of the law. But James isn't speaking about the works of the law. Not at this point. I mean, James is already established earlier on in the chapter And it's, uh, verse 11, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit a murder, commit murder. If you do commit, do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So he's demonstrated, look, there is no salvation through trying to keep the law. If you fail in, keep, fail in keeping one point of the law, you failed in it all. So James is not talking about the works of the law and keeping the law. Rather, James is talking about those works that evidence genuine faith. Those works that are a demonstration of genuine faith. So genuine faith is there and it is demonstrated. And this is what he's saying of Abraham. Abraham demonstrated that he had genuine faith in God by offering up his son, Isaac, on the altar. 
What came first, the faith or the works? The faith. And so therefore, the faith resulted in works. It wasn't the works that resulted in faith. It wasn't, I'm going to do good, and on the basis of that, I can now have faith that I'm right with God. No, Abraham trusted the promise of God. And in view of that trust that he had, unreserved and implicit trust, he done something that demonstrated that, that proved that he trusted God. And so this is what James is talking about. You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was what? Completed by his works. So the faith was there and the completion of the reality of that faith was seen in the works that he committed. And the scripture was fulfilled. That says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. And so even James clarifies there. He doesn't, he doesn't reference works in this. And Abraham believed God, believed God, trusted in God, had faith in God. And it was counted to him. It what? His faith was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again, let's pay attention to the detail. As he's saying a person is justified by works, he's speaking of those works that complete, that evidence, that demonstrate that faith is genuinely there. And so genuine faith will result in works, will result in demonstration. And if there isn't a demonstration, then it says that there is no genuine faith. I remember um, years ago, there was a, a friend and she said to me, you know, I, I just, I don't get it. Because, you know, it was a little while ago now that I said the sinner's prayer and that I believe in Jesus. And, yeah, when I look at my life, it doesn't look like your life. It doesn't look like. Robert's life, it doesn't look like Helen's life, it doesn't look like, and this person called out the names of a number of people within our social circle, um, we were all kind of moving together then, different churches and so on, and they was just like, this, I know that somehow, even though I've taken those steps and I've said those things, my life isn't the same as yours. There's something different. There's something that I feel like I'm lacking Now, at that time, I mean, I was pretty young in the faith, never wrestled through these scriptures, never heard them taught. I didn't really know too much what to say to her. Just, I, I, I don't know, just trust the Lord. Pray and ask him, he'll show you. I guess it's always a safe bet, right? <laughs> But you see, it seems in hindsight that what she had was this mental recognition, this mental acknowledgement that Jesus was sent by God, that he died on the cross, that he rose again. But there wasn't a submitted trust. There wasn't a submitted trust that was accompanied by repentance. So her thing was, she still sins. She still raves. She still smokes. She still uh, sleeps with her boyfriend, so on and so forth. And she, she knew that that weren't consistent. But she just couldn't understand why was she like that even though she had made the same profession as we had made. 
See, there were no works accompanying her professed faith. And that's what a lack of repentance would do. It was, Spurgeon said, you know what, there's no true salvation without repentance. And there are those who will have a belief in God and yet still believe in themselves. When we come to Christ, we're called to abandon, we're called to what? Deny ourselves, right? And take up our, reckon ourselves crucified with Christ. Our lives are no longer our own. And so, if people are coming to the Lord as uh, a fire insurance, well, you know what? I don't want to go to hell. And um, as long as I say these words like abracadabra, then I'll be all right. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Um, please forgive me um, and, and make me yours. Amen. And I've said it, and I don't want to go there. And now I've said it. It's like signing on the contract, signing on the dotted line. Now I can just live my life because that's taken care of. The policy's been secured. No. That's not gospel. That's not true surrender and submission to Christ. That's not recognizing Christ as Lord. That's not recognizing our sinfulness and our need for cleansing and our need to forsake our sin. And so that comes about as a result of a, a distorted gospel that comes about as a result of an undue emphasis on, uh, some people call it easy believism. Or, or greasy grace. The slide into the kingdom anyhow, it's all right. Some, slape agape. <laughs> and that's emasculating the gospel of the confrontation that it presents to every individual. That there is a cost. There is something to forsake. I heard the story of uh, a minister uh, in, in the time of the, the Wesleys, and he was part of their crew of preachers. And um, he was a minister who would hear of a rich person coming to faith. And he would say, hmm, okay. Uh, their heart is the Lord's, but is their wallet's? And it wasn't because he wanted their money, but he knew that <laughs> where a person's treasure is, there their heart will be also. Was that heart really the Lord's if their willingness to surrender even their wealth to him was missing? There is a cost. There is something that we are confronted with when we come to Christ. And that is the forsaking of ourselves, the forsaking of our own lives. James goes on to give another example. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messages and sent them out by another way? And so he speaks about Rahab from the, the, the book of Joshua, who was a Gentile and she was not of the kingdom, the, the, the people of God and as the, the, the children of Israel were, were spying out the land of Jericho she received the spies but the spies had been rumbled and they were under threat and people were coming to try and capture them and she hid them and when they came, they said, oh, no, no. She said, no, I never saw no spies around here. I mean, she lied. Let's just call a spade a spade. <laughs> they were hiding under her basket thing in her house. No, 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 I never seen any spies around here, you know. No, no, no. I think they went that way. But in doing so, she was demonstrating 
a willingness, a commitment to not only help these spies, but to, to be counted amongst those. She was identifying with them even at risk of her own life. If they had found the spies in there with her in their line, they would have taken her life with theirs. And yet, she demonstrated her faith that she believed in the God of Israel by taking that step of putting her own self at risk to help the spies. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It's dead. It's dormant. It's merely a sentiment. And so in this, we see James emphasizing the necessity for faith to have works. He identifies the fact that, you know what? It's, it's not what we believe about God that saves us. It's not what we believe about God that saves us. It is that we believe in God. It's that we trust in him. And that trust will result in works. It will result in an outward expression that corresponds with the inward conviction. Now, what are the works that ought to be done? What are the works that ought to be expected? James is saying, and we'll go back. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. There's got to be some works. Show me something. So James is standing here today and he's saying to you, show me something. In your mind, what do you show him? Is it sufficient that you've turned up? Is it sufficient that you have the Bible app on your phone? Access it every now and then? Is it sufficient that when there's a problem, you pray? The issue is true and false faith, fake and real faith. And so the heart of the issue, the first thing has to be the matter of faith. What's going on in our hearts? Jesus said this in John chapter 6. This is the work of God. That you believe in, that you trust in, that you rely on him whom he has sent. Speaking of Jesus. This is the first thing. If you're sitting down thinking, hmm, does my life really evidence that I have true faith? If you're feeling uncertain and unsure, the first thing is not to think about what works can you do to evidence it. The first thing to do is to assure that you have true faith. Because true faith will, by default, result in works. Jesus said it like this in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Heart issue. It's not if you keep my commandments, it shows that you love me. Uh-uh, that's the cart before the horse. That's the fruit before the root. You have to get to the root first. Is there a genuine love there? We're going to look at this in um, community group. Let me tell you, this, this, this next verse, right, is probably one of the scariest verses in the New Testament. One of the scariest verses. In the, and I'm not even just trying to hype it because I've got a couple minutes left and we've got to have a sensational finish. <laughs> Matthew. 
chapter 7. Yeah. Keeping you on the edge of your seat, right? You're scanning the chapter quick. Where is it? I better know what this verse is. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What a place to end the sermon. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father. Is Jesus subscribing to salvation by works? Our own works? If I just do what God wants, then, hey, I'm saved? No. Keep that in the context of John 6, verse 29. This is the work of God. They said to Jesus, what should we do that we do the works of God? This is the question we're all asking. What works do I need to produce to show that I've got genuine faith? Well, the first thing is to ensure that you have genuine faith. Believe in Jesus. Put your whole trust in him. Surrender to, in, surrender to him as the Lord of your life, your savior and him alone. Don't rely on anything about yourself, anything that you can do, anything that you have done, family heritage, nothing. Recognize that you are lost without trust in Jesus. Wholly and exclusively. Recognize that Jesus fulfilled the works of the law. He lived a perfect life, 33 years. Perfect. He kept, it's like you've got the exam. Uh, I don't, what is it nowadays? They say with the um, theory test, it's like you've got to get 90% or something like that, right? For your driving. It's a real high pass rate. And if you don't, then you don't, you're not even able to apply for your, you're not even to go for your driving test. Imagine you're sitting there examining, it's a 100% pass rate. You have to get 100%. I saw someone doing a um, fire safety, I don't want to mention no names. I saw someone doing a fire safety test this week, and it was like, no, I have to get 100%. I have to. Now, actually, I'm not sure if they did. I I wasn't. But this is a test. The test we're talking about is a test that none of us can pass. None of us can get 100% when tested against the law of God. If you break one, you've broken them all. Time doesn't forgive sin. You could have broken it 50 years ago. Unless that has been dealt with and paid for, that still hangs over your head as a fail. So we're finished. But Jesus, he lived a perfect life. 100% put your name at the top of the paper. Put his name on your failing paper. Come on now. Amen, bro. That's good news, man. That's good news. Credited with his righteousness. Credited. That's something to laugh about and smile about. Amen. (laughs) Credited with his righteousness. And yet he was discredited with our sin. We got the pass. Um, Any of you guys seen the um, program Suits? Kind of got into it for a while. Young lawyer. And um, he was... I'm not talking about this, not a spoiler alert or anything, because it's the kind of foundation of the whole series and every season. So you, if you don't know this, then you, the series won't make sense anyway. <laughs> and he was sitting the, the, the bar um, legal exam for people. And he had a photographic memory. So he would just go in, take the bar, pass it. I mean, he would even kind of work out how much he would pass it for to make it look realistic. He was such a don. And so he would pass it for them and put their name on the paper, and they got credited with the pass. That's what Jesus done for you. That's what he done for me. And if we trust, imagine, I've taken care of it. It's all done. You've passed. You can go now. You'll, you'll get your certificate through the post. Uh, mm, no, maybe not, you know. 
I don't think that this is such a good idea. Maybe I need to go and take it myself. Like, come on, I've done it for you. Why are you going to now go and distress the program? Why are you going to now hot yourself up, put yourself in a position where you could actually get caught and you could actually flop? In fact, you will flop because you know you're not going to pass. That's why you pay me so much money. Why would you do that? I've done it. It's finished, says the Lord. I've done it for you. Just receive it. Trust me and follow my instructions. And it's the person who embraces that with all of their heart that will produce faith that works. Will produce works that evident a heart that has been transformed because that's what happens when we trust Jesus. We experience a transformation within our hearts. Now, does that mean, last point, that we're now expected to be sinless? I want you to think back to the two examples that we were given that James used. Abraham and... Now, from what you know of their lives, were they sinless? Both of them, I mean, at the very least, both of them were liars. And furthermore, I swear that Rahab is, is, her her subtitle is what? The harlot. She was a prostitute. So these were not sinless individuals. Even an example given of Rahab, of her demonstrating her faith, she was lying in the process. I mean... Grace upon grace. If salvation is not, even in the Old Testament, it was by grace. Don't get it twisted. That's another message for another day. It's always been grace. And so it's not the expectation that now we're going to be sinless perfection. Walk on water, glow in the dark, appear in rooms. No. It's that we trust in Jesus. And we're pursuing a life that looks like his. And in our failings, we trust that Jesus is sufficient. And we're committed to grow in him and be more like him. Amen? I'm going to invite the team to come up. There is an expectation that there will be a change. There is an expectation that our lives will look different. There is an expectation that we will not continue in sin, that we will not continue to to live for self, that we will not continue to put ourselves before the Lord God. Thank you, bro. There is an expectation of that, and it's a reasonable one. Because that's what happens when somebody has truly submitted their hearts to the Lord. When we recognize that Jesus, he paid the penalty for our sin. He took the punishment for our sin. We, we, we can't willingly and happily and gladly continuing it when we truly understand that's what Jesus has done for us. We don't sin willfully and willingly, casually. Uh, uh, one of my favorite rappers is a guy called KB. And he's got this song, um, Zone Out, on the Weight and Glory album. And notice I'm giving him full credit, you know. I want you to know these things, man. And he says, I've seen the Lord, the same I'll never be. <laughs> Some say they've seen the Lord and live all casually. I don't know what they saw, because <laughs> the Lord ain't what they've seen. Because when you truly seen the Lord, you're obsessed with what you see. And I love that, I love that. I mean, I'm not a man to remember lyrics, but I committed that to heart because that means so much. When you've seen the Lord, the same you'll never be. 
You can't say you've seen the Lord and live all casually. Nah. And so, uh, the challenge is, is our heart fully, not in part, not partially, is our heart fully given to the Lord? And in case you're in any doubt, just look at your life. To what extent does it really reflect that? Is your career, your reputation, is your family name, your parents' approval, are your children, is money, any of these things more important than Jesus in your life? Your comfort, your luxury, these things more important? Or is Jesus greater than it all as we sang earlier? Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.